Well, it's, uh, it's been a minute since the first time that I held uh, my own newborn baby in my arms, uh, 25 years ago for the first time, and then three, time, uh, three years later after that, I did it again. And uh, we have some pictures of those sweet baby girls there, but just reflecting back on that time, and those of you that, that have kids, you know what this is like, right? You hold that tiny infant in, in your hands and... There's all kinds of emotions and thoughts that are just surging through you at that moment. I was filled with joy. I was filled with gratitude, with hope, with a lot of fear because I'm thinking I'm now responsible for these young lives. Um, so many different things going through your mind and so many things that I noticed. You know, I noticed their eyelashes for some reason, just holding them up, you know, just little, little bitty things. I mean, they, but their eyelashes are so perfectly formed and their little fingers and toes and the soft pink skin. And I noticed that their lungs, although I couldn't see them, seemed to be very healthy because they could cry just fine. But I think the thing that I noticed more than anything else was just how gentle they were. You know, there's really not anything gentler than a newborn infant. When we think about Jesus coming to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, being born, taking on human flesh, there's something incredibly gentle about his choice to enter into humanity in the form of an infant. And you know, he didn't have to do that. You ever stop and wonder or, or have the thought of, you know, why didn't Jesus just come as a, a, a grown adult? Why a tiny baby? The one who is so big that he created the universe that is 93 billion light years in diameter is the same one who became a helpless, tender little baby. And I think that's on purpose. I mean, yes, he could have come in a... As a grown adult, it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, think about how God created Adam. It doesn't say specifically, but as far as we can tell from the context, when he created Adam, he created him as a, as a man, as he probably was grown. He created Eve out of the rib from Adam. It wouldn't be the first time that somebody skipped being an infant, but Jesus didn't. He became like us in every way, but... The one that maybe is the most astounding is the fact that he became a tiny baby. We have, for the last few weeks, been in a series called Unwrapping Christmas, and we've been in the book of Isaiah, and we'll continue there again today, but just looking at different prophecies as they point forward to the coming of the Messiah, the more we can understand from what was predicted about the coming of the Messiah and then see that lived out in his life, the, the, the more we'll understand who Jesus is and why he came and how that impacts us personally. Uh, today we are in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. And I'd love for you to turn with me there in your Bible. We'll put the words on the screen as well. But Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice. Or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. 
Verse 1 kind of reminds me of some of the things that we talked about last week where it talks about the, the Spirit being on. I have put my Spirit upon Him. We saw that same phrase in a couple of different places in Isaiah that we were last Sunday. And we talked about the fact that when Jesus entered into the, the, the world, He did so without much fanfare. It was real simple. It was quite a simple birth. And as we say, coming as a tiny infant. But from the very beginning, the Spirit was on Him. But it wasn't until later that that became more visible. And there was a visible sign of that at his baptism. And we looked at this last week, but I want to read these verses again because there's so much similarity between what we read in Matthew 3 and what we just read in Isaiah 42. Matthew 3, 16 and 17 says, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I mean, you notice the similarities from that in Isaiah 42. My chosen in whom my soul delights. That's Isaiah 42, Matthew 3. My son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It says in verse 1 that the Spirit would come down on him. And then in Matthew that the Spirit rested on him in the form of a dove. There's a lot of similarities there. But it says in verse 1... That the reason Jesus had come, I put my spirit upon him, or would come, looking forward to the coming of Christ. It says, he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now this is, this is what the people were looking for, right? Justice to the nations sounds a lot like a warrior coming to deliver the people from bondage and to make things right. And that's what the Jews anticipated. That's what they were looking for. In fact, John the Baptist seems to have been looking for the same thing in the coming Messiah. We see just before the verses that I read a moment ago, uh, Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3, right before that, John the Baptist, or the baptizer, was baptizing. And he said that he baptized for repentance, but one would come after him who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he says this in Matthew 3, 12. He's describing the coming Messiah, describing Jesus. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that's just like, yeah, right? Like, let's, let's take him out. Let's, let's burn up that chaff like unquenchable fire. I mean, he seemed to expect Jesus to clean house. And when he didn't, it created some questions. I think this is the reason why when John was in prison, he began to question, is Jesus really who we thought he was? Because he sent some messengers to Jesus while in prison, and he asked them the question. He said, are you the one that was to come, or should we expect someone else? And you remember Jesus' response, tell people what you see. You know, people who lame walk, the blind see. Um, yeah, there's evidence that I am who I claim to be, but... John was expecting something else. He didn't see the winnowing fork in his hand. He didn't see the chaff being burned with unquenchable fire. And so he wasn't so sure. This is the same person who not, didn't write the Gospel of John, but in John's Gospel, chapter 1, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he says to everybody, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He knew who Jesus was. And yet he began to question because it didn't play out exactly like he thought it would. But when we read 
it, Isaiah 42. The next verse, after talking about bringing justice to the nation, says this, verse 2. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. So here's the, I'm going to talk about three things that we can learn about Jesus and we see lived out in his life from Isaiah 42. But the first one is this, that Jesus spoke softly. He didn't come with a winnowing fork in his hand and ready to burn up you know, all the chaff. That will happen on his second coming. But he spoke softly. Uh, he didn't lift up his voice in the street. Now by that I mean not that he was unwilling to speak up. Not that he was sheepish. But that he did not come with a lot of fanfare. He didn't try to make a big event uh, and, and really try to draw attention to himself by being the loudest voice in the room. You ever known somebody like that? You know, maybe some of us are like that. It's like, we always got to be the, the biggest, loudest voice in the room and drawing attention through that. That's not what Jesus did. I mean, yes, he had important things to say, and yes, he drew crowds. But he didn't draw crowds because he was the, the most, you know, dynamic or because he was shouting the loudest. There's another reason why the crowds were drawn to him. In fact, we read about it just before uh, where Jesus went up on a mountain to preach in what we now call the Sermon on the Mount. Right before that, we see why the crowds were starting to gather to him. Matthew 4, 23 through 25 says, And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. I mean, yes, the crowds assembled to Jesus, but it was because they saw a demonstration of spiritual power. It's because he's healing people. It's because he's teaching the good news. That's what drew them. Not that he was the most dynamic personality that ever walked on the earth, but because he cared for people and the power of God flowed through him, but not in such a way that, that he was shouting to get attention. You know, another great example of Jesus uh, going about his work and, you know, not seeking to draw attention comes in Matthew 12. There was a man, uh, Jesus was in the uh, synagogue on a Sabbath day. There was a man who had a withered hand. And it says that Jesus healed him. And he knew what that would do if he healed him. Because the Pharisees had all their laws. And one of the laws was you can't work on the Sabbath. And get this. Healing someone was considered to be work. So don't you dare heal somebody on a holy day. Because that would be a violation. You know, that would somehow offend God. Uh, it's it's kind of twisted the, the, the way the mindset was at that time. But Jesus couldn't have cared less about their silly rules. He cared about somebody who needed his help, and so he healed this guy. And as a result, they became very upset. And then it says that, that after that, he was telling him, don't tell other people what I've done. And you see this with Jesus a lot. You remember seeing this in different places? He'll heal somebody, he'll do something, and he'll say, don't tell anyone. Like, I thought, I thought you were a public figure, right? Why am I not going to tell people? Well, he wasn't there to, 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 to create fanfare. 
Matthew 12, 17 through 21 is another example of that. But listen to what it says after. It explains why he told this guy not to tell anyone what he had done. It says this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And then it goes on and quotes what we just read. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So Matthew is quoting this passage from Isaiah 42 to explain why Jesus told them not to tell others about him because he was not lifting his voice in the street. And one of the things that Jesus said repeatedly was this phrase, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Not saying physically do you have ears, but if you can listen, then pay attention. If you have ears to hear, then hear. Guys, any of you guilty like I sometimes am of hearing, but not really hearing, you know? Not really paying attention. We can do that with people. We can do that with spouses. We can do that with children. We can do that with coworkers. Where, you know, we hear, but we're not really hearing. And we do that with God. Can I just tell you, I'm embarrassed to admit how many times when I'm seeking to to listen to God, and I believe the primary way God speaks to us is through His Word, and so I'm reading Scripture, and I'm reading along, and I'm reading the words on the page, but then I realize I have no idea what I just read. Mine is wandering somewhere, or it's like, okay, I got to really, it's not enough to just read the words, which by the way is one of the reasons it's so important before you open your Bible to read it, just say a quick prayer and say, God, speak to me. Help my heart to be ready. I mean, it's a simple thing that we can do, but I want to hear your voice. I know for some of us the idea of hearing from God, that can be intimidating. And I wonder sometimes if we can almost make it harder than it is. You know, we, we, get, we put so much pressure on ourselves. Like, I've got to hear from God. What does that mean? Does that mean there's going to be some voice, that audible voice that just comes from behind me somewhere? And, you know, if it does, is it going to... Uh, you know, sound real deep and rich. I like, what, what's God's voice sound like? Well, sometimes it, it may be simpler than that, but God does speak to us. As we said, he speaks to us through his word. But let me just tell you, if you're not sure where to start, doing what you're doing right now is a good start. To be in a church where as God's people, we can come together and we can open up God's word and we can say, God speak to us and we can listen. That's a good start. That's not all there is to it, but it's a good start. And I would encourage you, as you are coming to church, do everything you can to prepare your heart to hear from God. And be intentional about that, because here's the reality. On your way to church, you know, if you've got kids, you know, you're probably trying to get them out the door, and you're, you're, you know, they, they may be screaming at each other the whole ride here, and you're stressed out, and maybe you're running late, and there's all this stuff going on, right? There's a lot of dynamics happening just getting to church. And sometimes we can come in and we're, our mind is on anything but God speak to me. But let me just encourage you to be intentional about that. Even if it's chaotic, right? Even if it's chaotic, when you hit that parking, you get in the parking lot, turn that key, it's just you begin to pray, God speak to me. God help my heart to be ready. I want to hear what you have to say to me today. Uh, and come with a heart ready to hear. 
and, and make that a priority, guys. Whether that's here, if you're not, if you don't have a church home, I mean, I hope that Gateway becomes your church home. But if it's not here, find a place where you can plug into a church that is teaching God's word and showing how it applies to life and make that a priority because that's one way we hear from God. But it shouldn't be the only way. We, we spend time with God. We get into God's word. We read God's word. I would encourage you again, just pray and ask God to speak to you. But um, do that in community, you know, large groups, small groups in the church where we can study. But do that individually as well. And have some kind of a plan to guide you through that. Something somewhat systematic so that it can guide you through where do I go in Scripture. I mean, that's this year for the first time we did a church-wide plan. And a lot of people signed up to be a part of that. And that's exciting. We'll get to celebrate in a couple of weeks the fact that so many have, have completed that reading plan. But as we get into the next year, we're going to have some quarterly plans so that you know if you don't get in on the very beginning, you're not left out for the rest of the year. But just some kind of plan. Or maybe you have your own plan, um, but just something where you can get into Scripture and ask God to speak to you. And just be intentional about listening. Intentional about saying, God, I, I want to hear your voice. And I know that I've probably shared this already, but this year, one of the things that has been helpful to me, and it's going to look different for everybody, right? But just to slow down and listen to God's voice has been to take some long walks where my goal is just to hear from God, just to be quiet, get away. Uh, to me, that needs to be out in nature somewhere. It needs to be, you know, trees around me. I don't want people around me at that time. I mean, just something of just, you know, where I can be, okay, God, I'm listening. And I can tell you it's not generally, a, you know, I'm not hearing audible voices and things like that. But just being quiet and creating that space can be helpful, especially this time of year when things are so hectic. It may look different for you, but whatever that looks like for you, do it. Do more of that, right? So that you can put yourself in a place to hear from God. And that's so important because Jesus speaks softly. So we need to listen intently. The second thing I see in this passage is that Jesus treated others gently. And this was... Um, predicted in verse 3 where it said a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And think about a bruised reed. A reed is already pretty, pretty gentle to begin with. You can snap it like nothing. But if it's bruised, then it's even, you know, it's all, it's even more in a, a place that requires some more tender loving care. Jesus is the one who provides that care for us. A bruised reed he won't break. He is so tender. He's so gentle with us. And we see this in so many ways in the New Testament. I mean, I think about the way Jesus cared for people, uh, such as a leper who came to him and nobody could touch a leper. Jesus didn't have to touch him to heal him, but he did. He touched him. He cared about him. I think about the woman that came up behind him and touched his clothes. He'd had this issue of bleeding and she was healed. Jesus could have just kept on going. He was on his way to a very important mission. But he stopped and he turned around. He said, who touched me? Not because he was trying to chastise her, but because he wanted to let her know that, that her faith had made her well. Um, I, I think about the way Jesus interacted with children. I mean, children are valued in our society. They weren't so much at that time, and yet Jesus welcomed children to him and cared about children when others didn't. I think about the people in society that were the outcasts, people like prostitutes or tax collectors or those who are like, mm, you know, stay away from them. If you're a holy person, you don't want to have anything to do with them. Jesus was drawn to them, and he loved them. He just had so much compassion. 
And it was obvious that, that he cared deeply about people. That's just who he was. You see this gentleness that starts by him coming to earth as an infant, but it doesn't stop there. It continues on through the rest of his life. And this is a picture of who God is, who, even who the Father is, because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And sometimes we have this image maybe of God the Father as being harsh and being critical. And, and sometimes I think subconsciously, maybe our image of an earthly father, if you've had an earthly father that has been that way, that can subconsciously bleed over into our image of who God is. But Jesus came to destroy that image and to replace it with a much gentler one. That's, that's who he is. Even with those that treated him so poorly. I mean, listen to Matthew 22. Um, this is right before Jesus is about to be taken away to be crucified. But Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. I mean, this image of tenderness and care and comfort a hen gathering her chicks. Jesus says to Jerusalem, to the ones who are about to kill him and that have killed the prophets in the past, that his desire was to gather them under his wings. But then he adds that little phrase at the end. He says, and you were not willing. May I just ask you a simple question today? Are you willing? Because part of the tenderness of Jesus, the fact that he's, that he's not going to shout above the crowd and the fact that, that he is tender and compassionate um, means that we have to be willing. We have to be ready to receive what he wants to bring to us. Because Jesus is gentle, he's not going to force his way on anybody. But if we're willing, if we're ready to turn to him, we'll find this incredible care. In fact, not only does he say that he won't, uh, a bruised reed he won't break, but then right after that it says a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You ever seen a, a wick on a candle that maybe is down to almost the, just the very last little bit? And, and it's just struggling, that little flame is just struggling to hang on, right? It does not take much to put out a flame like that. I mean, just a little tiny burst of air can put it out. I wonder if that's an image of how anybody feels today. It's like, you know, I, I'm, just, I'm just barely, you know, there's a, just a little bit of that wick that is left. And I feel like I'm almost completely burned out. And there's just a little bit left. And it wouldn't take much to, to extinguish that flame. You know, it could be somebody just harmless, what they intended to be a harmless joke, but it just lands the wrong way because there's not much there. Or it could just be you know, some additional responsibility where like, I can't take it anymore, I can't do one more thing, and that little bit of flame is put out. It doesn't take much, right, when you feel that way. But Jesus said he's able to sustain even those who are just have this much left. He's able to care for them, and that, that's the gentleness that Jesus has and the compassion that he has. And I remind you, he doesn't force his way on anyone. But if we're willing, if we're willing to turn to him, he will provide that for us. And then the third thing I want you to see comes out of verse 4. Back to Isaiah 42 again. It says, he will not grow faint 
or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Here's another way of saying that is Jesus finished his mission. He did not become discouraged. He didn't grow faint. He didn't get into the process and then say, this is too hard. I can't finish. And that must have been incredibly tempting based on what he knew he was taking on. In fact, we know that it was a struggle to go through with it. Now, I'm thankful that for Jesus, failure to complete the mission was never an option. And I'm so glad for that. But at the same time, he was human. He knew human emotion. He knew what it was like to to experience pain and grief. We see that in the way that he prayed the night before, right before he was taken away to be crucified. Luke 40, 22, 42 records the prayer this way. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And his prayer was, if there's any other way to go about this, then please let it be so. And then two verses later, it says that he was in so much anguish that his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. I mean, when was the last time you prayed? You were in so much anguish that you were sweating like drops of blood. A lot of scholars believe that Jesus experienced a rare condition called hematidrosis, where a person under extreme levels of stress can actually sweat blood. doesn't happen very often. But Jesus was under that level of just extreme um, stress and just the, 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 the pain, the weight of all that he was bearing. I mean, I know that he was God, but he felt every bit of that. But he didn't stop. He was willing to see the mission through to the end in spite of all that that meant. I mean, being arrested in the middle of the night, being put on some kind of mock trial where he wasn't really you know, given a, a, a real opportunity to defend himself, and he didn't try to. I think about the things that they did to him from mocking him by putting a purple robe on him, putting a crown of thorns on his head, and down to the, the, the physical abuse of scourging where they just beat them and ripped their flesh to shreds. After all of that, being forced to carry his own cross until he just physically couldn't do it, he gave out. And then being taken up on the hill where his hands and his feet were nailed to the cross, where he gave up his life and experienced this most painful, miserable way to die. So awful, in fact, that we coined a term from it, excruciating, which literally means out of the cross. Jesus went through all of that for us. He finished the mission. He didn't stop halfway through. And you get to his very last breath, and you know what he said. John 19, 29 and 30, it says a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. He didn't grow faint. He didn't get discouraged. Jesus finished the mission. He bore our sins on the cross. But that wasn't the end of the mission. 
by finish the mission, I mean he also came back. He rose from the dead and is alive today. Not only did he pay the penalty for our sins, but he defeated sin and death and now offers us the opportunity to experience that same life that only he can bring. The Bible tells us that we were dead. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that Christ died for us in our place. That's what he did for us because he finished the mission. My question for you today is, have you come to a point of receiving Christ? See, back to what we said a moment ago. He's not going to force his way on us. He's not going to just burst in and say, here I am. You have to put your trust in me. He's done everything for us, but we have to respond. We have to choose in faith to say yes to Christ. Now look, I know many of you have already made that decision, but I suspect that there are some of us in the room, there are some of us joining online that haven't yet. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that right now. An opportunity to say yes to Christ, to place your faith in Jesus if you haven't before, because he's done everything for us, but it requires faith on our part. That's that's all. We don't bring anything to the table. It's not that we do anything, but we do have to put our trust in him. We have to believe in him, that he died for us, that he rose again, and that he offers new life if we'll just turn to him. So I want to invite you to do that right now. I want to invite you to turn to Jesus, if you haven't already, and say, yes, Lord, I want to give my heart and my life to you. That can be intimidating if you're not sure where to start. And so we like to sometimes just offer you uh, a sample prayer, something that you can pray and just repeat these phrases back to God. God hears you. You can say it out loud if you want to, but you don't have to. God knows what's in your heart. So I just want to pray a prayer and invite you to pray back what I'm doing. I'll just pause after each phrase so you can communicate this to God as well. Let's pray together. If you're ready to put your trust in Christ today, I'll invite you to pray a prayer like this. Jesus, thank you for sacrificing yourself in my place. I confess that I'm sinful. I believe you died to pay the penalty for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day. Right now, I turn from my sins and I put my trust in you. I surrender myself to you and receive you as my Lord and Savior. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you.